Well, hi, everybody. Can everybody hear me okay? All right. See if I can get this recorder in my pocket without making it stop. This is one of the reasons why I don't wear skinny jeans. (laughs) Then there are a lot of other reasons I don't wear skinny jeans. Um, So here's what uh, Jake and I came up with for our conversation. We wanted to talk a little bit about just discipleship. And really what I want to do is I just kind of want to brainstorm with, like kind of have a conversation and brainstorm with you all. I'll throw some stuff on there. I'll kind of do some teaching, but then I'd love to just field questions and all of those kind of things. Is that okay with you guys? Okay. Here's why I love to do that. Because a good teaching begins a conversation. It doesn't end it. Does that make sense? A good teaching, by the way, I'm an interactive guy, so you're going to have to do this all morning. <laughs> okay? Um, but a, a good teaching never ends the conversation. A good teaching is never the last word, it's the first word. Especially when you're a visiting teacher. Because the last thing I should be doing is showing up in Canadian Texas and telling you all how to apply the gospel to this unique corner of the world. And it is a unique corner of the world here. It's beautiful. The people are fantastic. Amen. The food is even better. Amen. I don't know. The people are pretty good, but the food's been pretty darn good. Um, and and that, so, so the last thing that I get to do is get to come here and make all these declarative pronouncements and statements. So one of the things that the New Testament keeps saying is it keeps having this idea that we are the temple. Like there's this new temple. Jewish theology was always looking for this third temple. I'm not talking about Zionism today. I'm just talking about Judaism and second temple Judaism. They kept talking about how there would eventually be this third temple. There was a first temple, then there was a second temple, and there's going to be a third temple. And the New Testament plays off of this imagery, and who does it make the new temple? Not a trick question. You. And there's this beautiful theology that God has a new address. And so all throughout your New Testament, God keeps saying, don't you know that you... Plural. Somebody told me that Texas has a word for that. Y'all. We don't translate it that way in the Greek. But what Paul says is, don't don't you know that y'all, plural, are the temple singular of the Holy Spirit? Only once does Paul ever use it in in the singular. It's when he's talking about uniting your body with a prostitute. Other than that, everything else is always in the plural. So don't you know that y'all, plural, that's all y'all, are the temple, singular. It's not just Paul. Peter will say this, as you come to him, the living stone, you also as living stones, little l, little s, are being built into a spiritual oikos, spiritual house. That's what a Jew, that's the word a Jew used to talk about the temple. So you stones, how many, singular or plural? Plural are being built into how many temples? One temple. Now, I'm not taking away the, the, the biblical truth of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We all understand the Spirit dwells in us. I'm not taking anything away from that. But New Testament theology makes a big deal about how the Holy Spirit isn't in... I mean, yes, the Holy Spirit is in you, but the Holy Spirit's not just in you. You're not a temple, and you're not a temple, and you're not a temple, and you're not a temple. Y'all, y'all are a temple. And so when our churches, when our fellowships get together... There's this thing that God's called us to be. You are where my presence dwells, wherever you are. So here in Canadian Texas, y'all 
are where God dwells. And when people meet you, this church, and I don't want to get in trouble, but maybe the other churches that claim to follow Jesus. <laughs> that's, that's where I gauge how much fun you guys are going to be. <laughs> if there's a bunch of murmuring right there, I start to shift gears. <laughs> but whenever people meet God's people, and this is also why fellowship is so important, I can't just listen to a podcast. Darn it. I can't just listen to a podcast and follow Jesus on my own. Because that's not how God dwells in the midst of the world. God dwells in the midst of his people in fellowship. That's why the church is so important. Why the church is so unique. Why am I saying this? Because God's doing something here in Canadian Texas, and his presence and his... He is dwelling through you, you all, y'all, here in Canada. So I can't tell you what that looks like. That why, that's why God has brought you Jerry. And probably some others, because I think your elder board has more people on it than just Jerry. Because uh, there, are, there, are, there are decisions that you all have to make about what it means to live out the gospel here in Canadian Texas. Does that make sense? So I get to throw stuff on the table. I get to, like, stir the pot. Somebody once said, if you stir the pot, you got to lick the spoon. I don't know what that means. But then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave. I'm going to get in my truck, and I'm going to leave. <laughs> And then all y'all got to figure out what Jesus has to say about that. You may decide that Jesus was not talking through me, and that's totally fine. Because I'll be gone, and then you guys have to decide what it means to live out your gospel here. Does that make sense? That sounds like I'm setting up a really provocative lesson, and I'm not. Um, but that's why I don't want to make a bunch of declarative statements this morning, because that's not my job. And really, even it's not even, you will always be wrestling. We have been wrestling for 2,000 years with the dynamic call of what it means to be people who are committed to the word that we live by, the work that we're called to, and the world that we live in. I, I, had a, I heard a preacher say that once, and I loved it. There's the word we live by, the work we're called to, and the world we live in. And that's always a dynamic dance, never static. Because the world is all, at least one of those things is changing. The word of God never changes. Can I get an amen? Amen. Amen. The work we're called to, I don't think, changes, but the world we live in does change, and so applying the work and the world, excuse me, applying the word and the work to that changing world is always this dynamic call. Does that make sense? Okay. So let's talk about discipleship. That was maybe the worst segue I've ever had. Let's talk about a bunch of things that I... I, I've always been familiar with when we talk about the subject. Put some things on a whiteboard here because I love whiteboards. You guys don't have a Starbucks in Canadian. It's this thing, it's a coffee shop. I don't know your coffee shop in Canadian. Well, I have the wife, The wife, no. The wife, no. They will drive for me. <laughs> My wife would as well. So there's there's 7 a.m. at Starbucks. There, that's discipleship. Just, we get together at 7 a.m. every Thursday. Starbucks. That's discipleship. Okay. There is discipleship means I'm going to say spiritual formation. You could probably say a lot of things. Spiritual growth. 
discipleship equals spiritual development. I'm growing spiritually. That's the work of discipleship. There's, I worked in two different megachurches. So there's this concept of, um, sorry, I, all I can think of is Star Trek when I say this. Assimilation. Uh, the board? Never mind. Um, so when you were in when you were in a mega church, like they had this like small group program that you'd get assimilated into, and that's what they called discipleship. Two different mega churches, two different programs. They all you you were a visitor, but then you got plugged into a small group, and then you started leading a small group, and then you started leading leaders to a small group, and that was discipleship, right? And then I'm also a part of this wonderful Stone Campbell tradition, right? Can I get any amens on that? Uh, well, that was less enthusiastic. <laughs> and we've always had a history of making a big deal about the word disciples, yes? I can't remember which side you used it first or whatever. I did restoration history and found the whole thing to be incredibly unsettling. The history, not the concept. Anyway, never mind. So this has all been stuff that I've thought of when it comes to discipleship. Let me be clear. All this stuff is wonderful. I don't think we should stop doing any of this stuff. Does that make sense? Have I been super clear about that? I don't think any of this stuff is bad. We shouldn't change it. We shouldn't alter it. We shouldn't not do it. You, you guys have seen the beauty of small groups in this church. I know. I've heard the stories. I, I watched one on Sunday night. Life groups and small groups. It's incredible what, what the gospel becomes when you're committed to a community beyond just worshiping together on a Sunday or a midweek, but, but there's like you're, you're doing life together. Like you're giving to people that have needs in your group. I watched it. I saw it. I, I was only here for one. One group, one week, and I saw people giving of themselves to bless other people in Canadian Texas. People that had and people who didn't have, and they were at work doing the work. Does that make sense? Golly, that's good. So we shouldn't get we shouldn't get rid of that. That's good. Spiritual formation. Uh, we shouldn't get rid of that. Spiritual growth, spiritual development. Hopefully, that's happening in the name of Jesus. So, so that's we should not get rid of that. Seven a.m. at Starbucks has saved my marriage. <laughs> Sorry, that came out funny. <laughs> my wife's trips to Starbucks have saved my marriage. But my trips at Thursdays at 7 a.m. with men that I was accountable to has saved my marriage. So these things are beautiful. And God uses, Jesus uses these things in huge, mighty ways. We should not stop doing any of those things. Does that make sense? Tracking with me? By the way, this is fantastic. Don't, here's, what, here's one of the things I'm trying to say. Don't get hung up on the semantics and the words. I don't... I personally don't care what words we use for these things. Call this discipleship. Call it, call it whatever. Call ourselves disciples. That's, that's not, not a problem. Not a problem. Is it a problem? No. Is it a problem? No. Fantastic. Not for me. Maybe for you, but not for me. Not a problem. This, this whole concept, not a problem. What may be a problem, maybe, I'm not even sure, but what may be a problem is that in all the pursuits of these things, Somewhere along the way, I'm going to say about 1,800 years ago, we lost what Jesus and his disciples understood as discipleship. 
I don't think that's a cause for panic. I just think it's a cause for consideration. I think it's a cause for wrestling. To say, what are some of the things that I would consider? What are some of the things I might do with that? So what I want to do is I want to talk about what discipleship in Jesus' world looked like. Now, if you've gotten that far in the podcast, Marty in 2016 was taking a real hard line on this conversation. Because Marty was not smart. (laughs) Marty was less mature then. Marty thought he knew more than Marty did. That continues to happen, by the way. The older and older I get, the more I realize how complex and nuanced all these things are. And how the better conversation is always facilitating wisdom, not some newfangled teaching. Does that make sense? When you get to this in the podcast, it's like 2019-ish. And I've softened the corners and edges a little bit. I've softened the corners and edges a lot more since 2019. Does that make sense? I'm a lot less heavy-handed with this conversation than I used to be. I do think there's some really cool things to grapple with here. So let's talk about discipleship in Jesus' world. You guys still following me? You okay? Everybody all right? I do want to have a bunch of questions at the end. How are we doing? Oh boy. Okay, here we go. In Jesus' world, you came, you came back from Babylonian exile, changed. Okay, the Jews of Jesus' day are not the Jews of David's day. Which, by the way, the Jews of David's day are not the Jews of Samuel's day. And the Jews of Samuel's day are not the Jews of Moses' day. And that's not the same Jews as Abraham's day. Like, God's people have always learned, developed, evolved, whatever words that don't make you break out in spiritual hives. Like, that's something that God's always been doing in his people. We've been growing, learning, developing. So the Jews of Jesus' day came back from Babylon, and they were different. I'm so tired of this idea of, like, the stupid Jews never learned. The Jews learned at every major chapter along their journey. They didn't all get it right, and so I sure am glad that the Christians came along and did that once and for all. (laughs) But they came back from Babylonian exile, and they had learned. We went to exile because we didn't know the rules. Well, excuse me, we didn't follow the rules. Why didn't we follow the rules? We didn't know the rules. We will never not know the rules again. We will make sure we know the rules so that we can follow the rules. Please remember that the next time you want to throw all the Pharisees under the bus. There's plenty of things to critique about the Pharisees because that's what Jesus invites us to do. But please remember the context of the Pharisees before you just start chucking them under the bus. Does that make sense? They were deeply committed to not committing the same mistakes that their ancestors had committed in Israel and Judah. They will know. They will know the rules, the text. I shouldn't say rules. I hate, I hate how we think rules. But they will know Torah. And so they started a new educational system. They built these things called synagogues. They synagogues. And they brought it with them back from Babylon. And they went, and there was a whole group of people that went up north because the people down south were too compromising. I think, I think Church of Christ and Canadian Texas would probably understand this impulse. 
Like there was all those people from the big city and they, oh, they compromise everything and they want their football on Sunday mornings and the blah, 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 blah. And they just wanted to follow God with all their heart and their soul and their might. So they went up to the Galilee and they planted their synagogues and they built a world that was devoted to following Torah. That's the Pharisees. And the Zealots, but that's, you listen to the podcast and learn more about So this educational system that came with their synagogue had three stages. The first one was called Beit Sefer. Say Beit Sefer. Beit Sefer is house of learning or house of the book, literally. House of the book. About ages, ages five to ten, give or take. We used to think it was mainly boys. We've since discovered in the last ten to fifteen years that a lot of girls, if not if you could, almost all girls would go to at least as much Bet Sefer as you could. Bet Sefer was the first stage of schooling. Your job was to memorize the first five books of the Bible known as the Books of Moses or Torah. Remember, they didn't have a printing press. Your synagogue didn't even have an entire Bible. They were too expensive. You might have Deuteronomy, Isaiah, boy, that'd be a big deal. Maybe Amos, maybe Proverbs. But if you wanted to read the Psalms, you'd have to go to the next, or Leviticus, the next town over. You don't have a printing press. You don't have the version app on your phone. So if you're going to know Torah, do you see why it was pretty easy to not know Torah? How committed would you have to be to know Torah? You think your life groups now are hard. Thank you for chuckling at that. Like you, they had to know, they had to be committed because they had to be able to memorize it. You as a community had to know what Leviticus said. Right? That's Bet Sefer. If you were good enough, what do I mean by good enough? If you, if you knew Torah so well that the rabbi could start quoting anywhere in the Bible, in Torah, not tell you what book he's in, just stop, stop mid-sentence and point to you you would have to know where he was and pick up where he left off. Who's got a Bible first class? Let's play this game. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm going to change the page so you can't see. <laughs> Anyone who eats the fat of an animal from which a food offering may be... Anybody? I'm just hoping that I don't even point at no, nope, but that was a good guess. Uh, book? Leviticus, good job. Leviticus, we're in seven. Anyone who eats a fabulous animal for which a food offered may be presented to the Lord, must be cut off from their people. Close. <laughs> not close enough. Yeah, we're looking for Yeah, you're not making it to bake Midrash. <laughs> now, listen, history is really cloudy. We don't know exactly how this works. We know the pieces are there. We don't have enough archaeological evidence. We don't have enough historical writing to know exactly how we've done our best to piece together how history works. So please just know that after Bet Sefer, we know there's a thing called Beit Midrash. The question is, how does it relate to Beit Talmud? And everybody argues about the details. Beit Midrash, House of Explanation. From about 10 to 13. Only the best of the best are moving on. Only the people that could have done what I just asked them to do. 
And I couldn't have done that either, just for clarity. So, be real honest. So, so only the best of the best are moving on to the next level. Scholars are all over the place. Some say less than 1%. Everybody has agreed it's less than 10%. So, so 90% of you, at the, at the least, probably more like 98, 99% of you, get to the end of Bet Sefer, you're close but not quite, and the rabbi looks at you and says, obviously you love Torah, obviously you love God, this isn't for you, it's time for you to go home, fly your father's trade, and pray that your children will be able to do what you cannot. Ouch! Of course that's happening to 99% of you. So it's not like you're walking around with like, everybody's like, you too, yeah, me too, all of us. <laughs> Right? So this room, I don't know how many are in this room, I'm guessing, I don't know, give or take a hundred people in this room right now, so one of us, two of us are making it on to the next stage of Jewish school. Right? Okay? At the end of that, you have the best of the best of the best that want to move on from there. Right? That's the Beit Talmud. Say Beit Talmud. People debate whether or not those are reversed. Beit Midrash, Beit Talmud, as far as the name of which what. But that's going to be 13 plus. If you're the best of the best of the best, you are going to go sit at the feet of a rabbi. And you are going to learn, and you are going to study, and you are going to learn his opponents. Because he has opponents. Did you know this? You can go to Israel today. I was, uh, I don't know, five, six years ago. I was at uh, buying ice cream. I was there on a scouting trip by myself. I went into a store, a convenience store, went to buy ice cream, looked to the right of the cashier, and there was a rack of what looked like trading cards, only they're rabbis. <laughs> so on the front is the picture of the rabbi. On the back, where their stats would be, is like their key teachings, their famous quotes, their big-time interpretations, all those kind of things. They treat rabbis today, still today, 2,000 years later, the way that we treat LeBron James. <laughs> so you know who LeBron's great rival is, and you know what their teachings are. And there's going to come a day where that rabbi's going to say, like, you're going to say, can I follow you? Can I follow you? And the rabbi's going to quiz you and test you, and you better, A, you better know your Bible. Right here, that Beit Midrash. If you were good enough to memorize all of Torah, you now have to memorize the rest of Tanakh. All of it. Memorize. And you better start learning the rabbinical tradition if you have, want to have anything. So you're always getting a head start on the next stage. All of Tanakh. Hold on. Committed to memory. No printing press. You can't go home and study this at home. You don't have a copy of this at home. This is how, this is how much you have to dedicate yourself to knowing Torah. You have to have all of this stuff committed to memory. memory. That's, just, that's just here. So you better know your Tanakh if you, want to, if you want to follow a rabbi. You better know what his positions are and know what his rival positions are and how they get there and why the rabbi that you want to follow is right because he's going to grill you over it. He's going to ask you. Because the rabbi wants to know, does this person have what it takes to become just like me? So here's the phrase that my teacher Ray taught me. 
A disciple is somebody who wants to know what the rabbi knows. Say it after me. Know what the rabbi knows. In order to do what the rabbi does. For the reason the rabbi does them. In order to be just like your rabbi. In their walk with God. Okay, I'll say it again. Don't repeat after me this time. To know what the rabbi knows. In order to do what the rabbi does. In order to, for the reason that the rabbi does them. In order to be just like your rabbi and walk with God. Your goal is to mimic and imitate everything that that rabbi does. And you are not allowed to teach for yourself, to think for yourself out loud until he says, I give you the keys. When he says, I give you the keys to teaching, you can now start to teach on your own. But until he says you're ready for that, your only job is to know and regurgitate what your rabbi has said. Right? That's, that's what it means. So when Jesus goes out and he starts walking by the lake and he sees Peter and Andrew and they're fishing, what does that tell you? At some point, they were not good enough. At some point in here, they got told, you obviously love God, you obviously love your, your Bible and Torah, but you don't have what it takes. Go ply the trade of your father and pray that your children will be able to do what you cannot. James and John are fishing with who? Their father, which tells you they're under 13 years old. Because if they're bar mitzvah, they don't do bar mitzvahs, but they have the same, it's called the Passover, the Paschal Sacrificial Transition. It, until they're an adult, they, they will work with their father. Once they're adult, their father will say, hey, you go get your own boat. I might stay at home. I might double, we might double our profits, whatever. But now, so Peter and Andrew are fishing on their own, as far as we can tell. But James and John are fishing with their father. They're less than 13 years old. And there's evidence for that throughout the gospel. Like, that really weirds people out sometimes. Because you picture, like, a bunch of 40-year-old, 50-year-old disciples wandering around with 30-year-old Jesus, which actually is twice as weird. But nevertheless, <laughs> like, a, um, a rabbi is legally responsible in the, for the temple tax legally responsible. The Talmud said, which is later than Jesus, but the Talmud tells us what they were thinking in Second Temple Judaism. The Talmud said that the only relationship greater than a relationship between a father and a son or a mother and a daughter is a relationship between a rabbi and a, and a disciple. That's why the Talmud said, unless you, unless you hate your father and your mother. It had very similar things to what Jesus said. Because the rabbi-disciple relationship is that intense and that close. The rabbi's financially responsible for you. So the temple tax, mom and dad, come on, good Texan. Mom and dad are like, I ain't paying that tax. <laughs> the rabbi's responsible for that tax. The relationship's greater than the parent. So remember when Peter was grilled about the temple tax? Did your rabbi pay the temple tax? And he's like, yes. And then he walked inside, and Jesus was like, oh, Peter. He's like, yes, rabbi? Do I pay the temple tax? Let's talk about kings and subjects and fathers and children. Now go out and get a go out and cast your line, and you'll catch a fish. And what? There will be a two drachma coin in its mouth for whose taxes? Yours and mine. Which tells you the only person older than eighteen—that's where the temple tax became applicable—is Peter. Everybody else is under that age. Like the Matthew of the text collector. Yes, Rome, Rome, Rome employed people who were adults, but barely, because they could manipulate them, coerce them, exploit them easier 
when you were a 16, 17-year-old than when you were 20 or 30. They always exploited. I love the Chosen and the way they depicted that if you follow the Chosen. And they've made those ages a little bit younger, which I really appreciate. But that's... That, so, but, but sorry, I got off on the age thing. Jesus goes out and says what? You come... Do you realize why they dropped their nets? Like, they dropped their nets because they just got a chance to do what less than 1% of the population will ever get a chance. Of course they dropped their nets. Like, have you ever been to Bible study and people are like, I can't believe they dropped their nets. Isn't that kind of expensive? Dude, they, their, their friend, Jacob, was just like, go, man, go, I'll tell dad, woo! Like, he's going to get the boat done. Like, he's not worried about the boat. You just got the opportunity to go do like the one thing you always wanted to do. Scholars say we know of five rabbis in the first century. Five. Maybe there were more. Ten? Twelve? Fifteen? Some rabbis had one disciple. Some rabbis had a hundred. Some rabbis had twelve. <laughs> they say, what are we working with? Two hundred disciples? Two hundred disciples? In a, in, a, in a nation of six and a half million? Here's the word for disciple. The word for disciple is Talmud. Say Talmud. If you want to make it plural, you say Talmudim. Say Talmudim. Talmud, Talmudim. If you say this in the Arabic, it's Talib. Say Talib. If you make it plural, that's not a knock on Islam. That's not my point. My point is, this is the fiery commitment, Taliban, for anybody who can't read it. Plural, Taliban means disciple. This is the fiery commitment in the Middle East that a Talmud has to following the teaching of the teacher. Okay? So I'm fine with this. I have no problem. I have absolutely no sleep over this. So realize that this word, if you say it in the Hebrew, let me get rid of that. Uh, Understand that this word in the do you say that in the Hebrew, what you're saying is, I wake up with an unquenchable fire in my belly every single day to be just like Jesus in my walk with God. It is an all-consuming focus of what I do. careful before you throw and take that word a little bit too lightly. Now, you can get off the hook by saying, I mean it in the Greek way. And then we're off. We're okay. <laughs> because the Greek word mathetes can mean all of the above. So there's a word, talmid is actually a play off of the root word for student, which is lamud. Say lamud. Lamud. You can see L-M-D. Lamud. Talmud is a extrapolation from Lamud, student. But in the Hebrew, you can be Lemudim. You're all Lemudim right now, but none of you are Talmudim of me. You're all Lemudim. You're just learning. You're just students. In the Greek, the word Mathetes, and Mathetes means all the above. So I really wish we had Matthew's Hebrew copy, because church history tells us that Matthew was originally written Hebrew. We 
you don't, you have Matthew's Greek copy. If I had it in the Hebrew, I could tell you what Jesus meant when he said, now go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Did he say Lumudim? Or did he say Talmudim? Because here's my last closing comment, and then we'll have a whole, like, four minutes to actually ask questions. The wrestling match that I have here is why aren't any of us making disciples the way that Jesus made disciples? Especially for all the Stone Campbell restoration movement. We're just going back to the way the early church did it, are we? Now, uh, again, that was less than 1%. So I don't think it's what everybody's supposed to do. I don't think it's what every pastor is called to do. I just want to know why nobody's doing it. So I got in the campus ministry to try to experiment with these things. Because I had a hard time doing it with high schoolers because everybody's mom got mad. <laughs> and, uh, and you have a hard time doing it with college graduates because they're married and they have a mortgage and three kids and a ranch to run. Right? Cody, Whitney would have something to say if I was like, Cody, come follow me. Like, mm. No. So I got into campus ministry to find this window of people where you could say, come follow me, come do what I do, come. And we put, we put three college students in the next door apartment. My family rented out an apartment, we rented out the next door apartment, and we had three students. And they woke up at 7 a.m. and we did breakfast together, and then we did spiritual practices, and we walked on the campus, and we did classes, and we taught the college students, and then we had meetings with students, and we did the whole 7 a.m. and 1 p.m. at Starbucks thing. And we did that, and then we got home, and we ate dinner together, and then we would play together and have video games, and they would go. We tried to do life together as much as we could. Because I was trying to take a small group of students and disciple them. It was just an experiment. And if you're like, man, that's really close to a cult, you're right. <laughs> Which was part of the challenge. It gets weird real quickly. And so I had to stay intentionally tied to our local church, 100% committed. We'd show up for staff meetings, we ran the small group curriculum, we did all the things that the local church did, even though we hated half of it, because it was important for us to be connected to that local church so that we weren't weird. I mean, we were weird, but we needed to keep ourselves from just taking off in some weird direction, because we know things about the Bible that nobody else knows. So that's why this discipleship program happening within a local church fellowship is so important for me. What does this mean for you guys? I have no idea. I'm pretty much out of time, and I'm going to drive out of the parking lot here in a couple hours. But these are the wrestling matches that I have with what it means to disciple people. Is there anybody? Is there one person here in Canadian? I don't know if it's Jake's job. It could be anybody's job. But is there one person here in this church? Let's just do the percentage thing, 1%. Is there one person in this church that wants to take one other person under their wing? What if, what if, what if three people? Or what if one person took three people under their wing? Not in a weird cultic way. And like a, you know, an accountable. And we started really pouring into the spiritual formation of probably a young person. Probably not a 40-year-old. Not saying you couldn't. In Jesus, you could do that. But there was a strategy behind taking these young people and saying, you're, you're built different. Sorry, that's me getting clever. He's built different. That's what they 
But I'll, stop, I'll shut up because I, sorry, I'll be quiet. Campus minister coming out of me. I got two minutes. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah, totally get that. But I never was here. And if we keep doing that, if we, if we have lost that art, somebody has to start it because the answer will be then we'll never get back to it. And that's why it's probably not for everybody. It's probably why you don't do this church-wide. And again, I'm not, I'm not, it sounds like I'm actually saying I'm starting a new program. That's not my point. My point is to have this understanding of discipleship so that we can wrestle with what that means in our life groups. Like, even if all we're doing is taking one step further towards it, just one step. Like, hey, let's do life a little bit closer. Like, maybe there's a couple people in that life group that need to, we do life group on Sunday nights, but there's two or three of us that do 7 a.m. at Starbucks. Or that Canadian Donuts place, because that place is good. <laughs> I had their lemon curd filled donut this morning. I would do discipleship there. <laughs> so yeah, don't let that stop you. Like get in there and get in there. Like there's all here's the thing. There's always somebody in front of you, every single one of you. Every single one of you in this room, there's always somebody in front of you spiritually. And there's always somebody behind you. I don't care how far mature you are, and I don't care how immature you are. There's always somebody in front of you, and there's always somebody behind you. So there's always somebody that you can be learning from, but there's always, always somebody. Not with, with, with all the humility in the world, where you go and you say, I'm going to run after Jesus, and I don't know much, but would you like to run with me? I'm going to start memorizing one verse a week. I'm going to try to start memorizing one Bible verse a week. That's, I'll give you a couple weeks off of vacation. That's 50 verses a year. One verse a week. Tell me you can't do one verse a week. But now, listen to me. Tell me that 50 verses every single year wouldn't radically change your life. Amen. And what will Jesus do as those verses begin to come out of you? What if he just took somebody with you as you did it? What if you simply said, I'm going to do this. you want to do this with me? Sure. What would God do with two people, just two of you, that have 50 verses over the course of this next year inside of you? Ready to come out of you. Ready for Jesus to use to transform your heart and your life. What if you have like 30? Canadian Texas would be like a different place when I came back next year. <laughs> like when Paul says, I'll be back. Prepare a guest room for me. <laughs> Anything else? I'm out of time, but I'm going to wait for Jake to tell me. Turn on. <laughs> Going once? Why is it so Because, yeah, oh, wow. that's, that's such a good question. I wish I had 15 more minutes. The reason that, because we in the Western world like to take any kind of energy and make it effective and efficient and leverage it, especially when we think it's for the good. And so we just make everything expedient. We're all about quantity and speed rather than quality. 
And so we, and, and that hemoglobin is about quality control. It's about accountability. We talked about accountability on small groups this week. I don't know if everybody else did, but we did. That, that idea of accountability is about quality control. It's about me making sure I'm rubbing shoulders with everybody. Now, that takes time. And that slows everything down. Do you know how slow everything gets? I've got to be accountable to everybody else? Yeah. But in the midst of that, that's where the Spirit of God moves. It is slower, but it's better. It is slower. But then the Spirit's like rubbing shoulders with everybody else. And now I'm... And now I'm actually angry, and I have this conversation with you after church, and you're like, man, he doesn't even get it. But actually, it's just the Holy Spirit planting some seeds. They're going to sprout into something else later. And I'm sure you guys don't have any of that church drama here. <laughs> That's the Holy Spirit at work. And so we try to like shut those things down and just run full speed ahead so that I can make the cover of Christianity today rather than impact one life in Canadian Texas. Worth it, and it'll be it'll be better because it will be accountable. I'm really bad at that because I just want to make more quicker. Not worth it. The older I get, the more I believe it. Let me pray. Can I pray? Okay. Jesus, I don't know what you would do with the seeds that we might have planted today. I have no idea. It's a weird conversation. Um, I'm not even sure. If all the seeds that I threw out there should, should be planted. So I would just ask that your, your ruach, your wind, your breath, your spirit would just blow through and get rid of any of the stuff that you don't have for the church here. Just blow that stuff away. Get rid of all the stuff that you have no interest in planting here. And whether it's just one passing comment, one single idea one concept that you want to stick, that you want to work with, with whether it's one person or, or an elder board or anybody, a youth, a, a retired person here in this congregation. So whatever it is that you want to take root, would your spirit do that? And would people be here to water it, and care for it, and, and would we not give in to the idolatry of more and bigger quicker would we, would we lean for the quality of spirit filled would it look more and more like Jesus we just love you and we pray all of that in Jesus name Amen. thanks everybody